Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. From KCRW and KCRW.com, I'm Alan Howard. Welcome to a special series, A Bookworm Retrospective, a celebration of the 33 years of bookworm on KCRW with Michael Silverblatt. Michael is on hiatus because of health reasons. Michael and I have been close friends for more than 33 years. 30 years ago, Michael brought me onto the bookworm team to first market and then to edit the show. I read constantly as a child. My mother, who was a devoted reader, let me read as much as I wanted. So I devoured the tales of King Arthur in grade school, then Tom Sawyer in the seventh grade, and the Bronte sisters in the ninth grade. I studied literature at Yale. One of my professors was the brilliant literary critic Harold Bloom, who became a frequent guest on Bookworm. After Yale, I went to UCLA's film school. I've had a career in the movie business as a studio executive, a director, and a screenwriter. When we met socially, Michael's first question to me was, what are you reading? Hoping to impress, I answered that I was rereading The Counterfeiters by French Nobel laureate André Gide. As he inquired further, I admitted that I also read a roster of mediocre bestsellers. He laughed, I laughed, and a friendship was born. Today, I am still movie crazy like many members of my cineast generation, but over the decades, Michael brought me back to my first love, literature. Thus, I stood in for the thousands and thousands of bookworm listeners whom Michael reclaimed for literature. I got to sit opposite Michael while he recorded bookworm conversations, usually in the KCRW studios in Santa Monica, and then in Michael's apartment during the pandemic. I was being given a private tutorial about language, words, sentences, structure, and meaning by a genius of criticism and observation, Michael. In 2005, Michael talked with Marilyn Robinson about her novels Gilead and Housekeeping. He revealed the zeal that was the source of his steadfast commitment to bookworm. When I do the show, it's as a shrine to once when literature was taken seriously, not as a, isn't it nice that we have such a sensitive guy reading books for us? <laughs> uh, you know, it, it was really meant in the spirit of go thou and do likewise, if possible, um, and that, you know, what you believe in, you must find a way to maintain, Yes, which is, I think, what both of these novels are, are in fact about. Absolutely. And that their extraordinary beauty is part of a magic spell by which the reader may be led into the recognition that what was lost is so beautiful that it's unbearable to leave it lost. Michael climbed onto the barricades to battle the eclipse of literary fiction and poetry. He was determined to return them to the center of the zeitgeist. 
In the process, he faced the realities of loss and grief. In conversation after conversation with writers he was forging collegial friendships with. Loss itself was the frequent topic of those friendships and conversations. In 2018, he talked with Joan Didion, who had already been on more than 10 bookworm shows. People who know the sound of my voice know that my voice is full of the awe that I feel to be in the presence of a writer I truly admire. Her new book is called Blue Nights. It's published by Knopf, and I thought we would begin by hearing its opening section. This is Joan Didion reading. In certain latitudes, there comes a span of time, approaching and following the summer solstice, some weeks in all, when the twilights turn long and blue. This period of the blue nights does not occur in subtropical California, where I live for much of the time I will be talking about here and where the end of daylight is fast and lost in the blaze of the dropping sun. But it does occur in New York, where I now live. You notice at first as April ends and May begins a change in the season. Not exactly a warming, in fact not at all a warming. Yet suddenly summer seems near a possibility, even a promise. You pass a window, you walk to Central Park, you find yourself swimming in the color blue. The actual light is blue. And over the course of an hour or so this blue deepens becomes more intense even as it darkens and fades, approximates finally the blue of the glass on a clear day at Shark, or that of the Cherenkov radiation thrown off by the fuel rods in the pools of nuclear reactors. The French called this blue, this time of day, le bleu. To the English it was the gloaming, the very word gloaming reverberates echoes, the gloaming, the glitter, the glamour, the glimmer, the glisten, carrying in its consonants the images of houses shuddering, gardens darkening, grass-lined rivers slipping through the shadows. During the blue nights, you think the end of day will never come. As the blue nights draw to a close, and they will, and they do, you experience an actual chill, an apprehension of illness at the moment you notice. The blue light is going. The days are already shortening. The summer is gone. This book is called Blue Nights because at the time I began it, I found my mind turning increasingly to illness, to the end of promise, to the dwindling of the days, the inevitability of the fading, the dying of the brightness. Blue nights are the opposite of the dying of the brightness, but they are also its warning. Joan Didion reading the opening of her new book, Blue Nights. This is a memoir at first concerned with the death of your daughter, Quintana Rue. Did you think you'd be writing such a book? No, I had no idea. I, I had some idea that I would write a book about having children. And then as I got d deeper into it, or as I began to write it, I realized that it wasn't about having children in the abstract, it was about my child. And that led to thoughts of death because she had died. 
and thoughts of death led to the Blue Nights. And the minute I thought of the, I thought of the Blue Nights, I knew what the book was about. I mean, it was it was about aging and death, which was certainly on my mind. As you read the book, you discover that the subject is one that really hasn't been broached in literature before. There have been people who want to help you age or even want to help you die, but... But the assumption is that you don't have to. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And that a work of literature, by and large, doesn't take it up. It's almost as if writers avoid that, you know. So that... When I reached the last 20 or so pages, I said, oh, my, we're going to go as far to the edge in this book as it's possible to go. Well, I'm so glad you thought that. It's a stunning thing. I think it, you know, it can only be put along with King Lear and some of the other works of approaching madness or approaching the end. Well, you know, I didn't think I would finish this book. I, I kept thinking I would, I would set it aside. I would abandon it. I've abandoned books, books before, and this one seemed eminently a candidate for being abandoned and because I wasn't having a good time with it. Well, naturally, I wasn't having a good time with it when I look back on it. It was not a, not a good-time book. Yeah. How did you find yourself able to complete it. Well, I just decided I had to because, and then suddenly I found a rhythm. Sometimes you just make a, a stab in the dark and try and exhibit some blind faith that, that, it, that it will take you home. That was Joan Didion talking about her book, Blue Nights, which was written in response to the death of her daughter, Quintana. In 2009, Michael spoke with Jim Crusoe, a close friend, about his novel Escape, which contemplates the dividing line between life and death. You know, today I have as my guest Jim Crusoe, and it's a pleasure to have him here. He has been my friend for nearly 25 years. I knew him when he was a poet. Now he has published his fourth book of fiction, erased from Tin House. This book brings the narrator's mother into the world of the dead or undead. And I I know that you wrote the book after your own mother's death. And I wanted to ask you about that. I had begun this book um, in various ways, about 60 different, well, no, about 10 different times, about 60 different pages each time. And then my mom died, and it happened in a very odd way for me. Maybe maybe everyone's is odd for, but what had happened was I had just gotten back from uh, a school camping trip, an overnight camping trip with my son, and it was a particularly kind of horrific camping trip, and it was on a Friday afternoon. And um, I was supposed to – I gave her a call that night, and I said, I'll be seeing you um, 
the next morning. I'll see you Saturday morning. And she and I said, how are you feeling? And she said, for the first time ever, she said, actually, I don't feel so good. And and then that was all. And, and usually when my mother would talk about how she was feeling, she would have a list of every of specifics. And, and this was it. And, and, um, and there was something slightly odd that I'd barely registered. It must have been at a subconscious level for me so, because when I went the next day, I didn't, I sort of specifically didn't bring my son with me. And when I got there, um, she was dead. She died in the middle of the night. And the question that I started to turn around was, where does this process start? Was she was it beginning as she told me on the phone that she didn't feel so good, uh, or was it a surprise to her? And how did that work? And then how far, if it began, how far before that had it began? So this question of demarcation between life and death really is one of the the main things. But it's one of the main questions I was dealing with in this book. I was raised in Cleveland, and it was a place of such um, formidable grayness that it's my it was my intention in a certain way. It was what I longed for was to find was to look so deeply into something that you would come out the other end and see it. But this idea of finding more than than surely must be there seemed uh, really important to me growing up. It seems really important to me now, as a matter of fact. And he, this narrator, arrives to think of Cleveland as the brightest spot on the map, the best place on earth. He's busily... Just as your imagination is saying what is not there that is um, dark and fearsome, his is aboundingly buoyant. Well, it's not his imagination. It's my imagination that's buoyant in this place. He arrives in Cleveland to find it indeed a paradise that he had not ever imagined. And in a weird way, that's also uh, in, in a in a way reproduces my experience of writing the book because I had been trained to think of it in, in habitually as a gloomy place. And yet when I started writing it, I had I found myself putting myself back into being a child where the whole world in a certain way is fresh and a paradise. And um, the strange thing about the book is it seems to be a kind of fantasia, not about hell, but about the Midwest. I think so. I mean, um, you know, I think about what I do sometimes, and I think that what I care about is, this sounds uh, really sappy, but I think that growing up in what I saw was a constricted world. It's really important for me to put in some wondrous moments and to insert and wondrous possibilities for things and to let to create things that haven't existed exactly before but three planes from away from reality could exist or might exist it is the life journey i mean i mean you know that's the way it is and and whether you have a ludicrous life journey or whether you have a serious life journey uh guess what 
um, you arrive at the stopping place. And that seems to be important. That was Jim Crusoe. In 2017, Michael spoke with novelist Steve Erickson, another lifelong friend who narrated the first show in this series. His novel, Shadow Bond, dramatizes a struggle in America's national identity. My honored guest is Steve Erickson. His new book is called Shadow Bond. It's a novel. And I thought it was so absorbing and so intense that I've read it three times. I was in equal parts in a state of adoration and also shattered by the book. Tell me, do you believe a novel should be a intense experience? Well, first of all, Michael, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. I, I write my novels hoping that they read as if they were written in one stretch and as if, as if they were going to be read in one stretch, which I realize they're not going to be. But nonetheless, I think that makes for a certain intensity. Um, my hope, especially with a novel like this one, is to sweep the reader along over whatever you know, speed bumps of comprehension the novel may uh, present and to have the reader caught up in um, you know, the world that the novel's trying to create. Well, one afternoon in the not-too-distant future, uh, the Twin Towers suddenly reappear in the Dakota Badlands. And as people from all over the country and then all over the world began, begin to gather to see the towers, the reader begins to understand that um, up on one of the top floors of one of the towers is living Jesse Presley, who is um, the stillborn twin of Elvis. And as he is trying to find his way out of the tower, He's going mad from a, a, a voice in his head that is his but isn't and from uh, a memory of, of an America where he existed in his brother's place. Yes, it's a parallel America. In this book, we imagine an America that is not our dream of America, that doesn't conform to the American dream. And it struck me that at this moment, who isn't thinking about alternative Americas? Was the writing particularly difficult to accomplish? It was, I'll, I'll say, unique in terms of the writing. I, I usually... You know, I, I, I usually, you know, start out with a pretty strong notion of what, what the work is. I have a pretty fair idea where it's going. I don't like to figure out everything because I want to, I want to leave open the possibility of accidents that aren't accidents. And um, this novel, I, you know, is, is, has got a fractured quality that I – uh, 
that I exacerbated for a while before at the end feeling like I needed to put a few of the pieces back together so that people would be able to, 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 to see the whole. Well, it seems to me that this novel was written practically a page at a time. That, you know, we're dealing on each page with usually two paragraphs that are there to represent the Twin Towers. And that because of this, the pages are short. You hurtle through them, and before you know it, you're in a dreamscape in which all kinds of unexpected things are happening. In fact, by the last 30 pages of the book, I became aware that part of my thrill, even the third time round, was of not quite knowing what would happen next. Mm -hmm. And that this is the condition that we're living in in America, it's right. a new America. We once knew what our goals were and where we were going. Right. Um, and in the same way that I kept sort of reimagining the novel, which is to say every 75 pages, it almost becomes <laughs> a new novel altogether yes. before it becomes one whole novel at the end. I think that we keep reimagining the country um, every 75 years or so hoping that at the end there's going to be a whole a, a whole country there's going to be a you know um, there, there's going to be a cohesive nation that was Steve Erickson this is a bookworm retrospective show we'll be back after this short break I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend hosted by me Lila Raptopoulos Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. This is Bookworm editor Alan Howard. Producer-host Michael Silverblatt embraced the rise of younger, brilliant writers like David Foster Wallace. He developed an important mentoring relationship with Dave Eggers, who narrated two shows in this series. In 2021, they discussed his novel, The Every. Today, as a guest, we have Dave Eggers, who I've been speaking to on again, off again, since the publication of his first book, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. And now his new book has come out. It's called The Every. This book has three subtitles. The title of the book is The Every. What are the three subtitles? Yeah, The Every or At Last a Sense of Order or The Final Days of Free Will or Limitless Choice is Killing the World. This book is so much about choice or lack of choice. And uh, so I decided to do as many titles as I wanted. And I think right now we're up to (laughs) 64 different uh, covers for the book, too, with more to come. I was sent an email 
showing me at least 40 of these covers, and they get more and more beautiful as they go on. The narrator is a young woman named Delaney Wells. What's most important to her is that she she's sort of the ultimate uh, sort of uh, outsider or polar opposite of what she becomes, which is a, a cog in a, in a uh, uh, machine of surveillance capitalism. She comes from the woods in Idaho, living in a place called Ghost Canyon. And she really, you know, came from an idyllic sort of outdoor life. And when finally she becomes a forest ranger and when in this book that takes place in some un, unknown part of the, the future, maybe five, ten years from now, it's such that all national parks require any visitors to have a smartphone to be able to even light out on a trail. For her, that's the last straw, that if we are required to have digital devices, even in, the, in these places where they're supposed to be apart from the world and apart from pressures of society and apart from connectivity, if we're now legally bound to be connected at all times, then we've changed too uh, radically and depressingly as a species. So she decides to go into this company and try to destroy it from within. She goes into this company, which we can fairly well identify because we know that the company is named after a jungle in South America. So it's not being inappropriate to say the word never mentioned in the novel Amazon. I found the book very, very funny. Its narration is fantastic. It is a satire, and the book is at the same time heartbreaking because it signals something about the death of the human. The first thing that, you know, Delaney does when she goes in for an interview is that she meets a man named Dan Faraday who interviews her and she expects to hate this person and loathe him and not identify with him at all. But she finds herself really liking him and feeling for him. And he lost his wife recently and he's a full three-dimensional human of, um, you know, flesh and blood. And, and she goes back to Wes, her friend, and says she can't do it. She can't act you know, she can't do this sabotage because she's going to find herself caring about all the people who work there. And uh, she has to sort of struggle through that and come to believe that they'll be better off in a world where this company uh, is extinct. This is a novel of nearly 600 pages because, like the great novels, it's attempting to talk about the lives around us. You know, when The Circle came out in 2013, I thought that was the end of me writing any dystopian uh, fictions. Um, it was not something I thought I would do in the first place. Um, I'd been living in the Bay Area for, since 92, so I saw the internet come, come up around me and these tech companies start uh, from nothing uh, to become these uh, global behemoths and monopolies. But after The Circle, I... I thought that I had said all I needed to say on this subject. And, but right away, even when I was on tour for the book, speaking at colleges especially, I got doubly scared 
at what I was hearing. I was hearing from young people that were telling me that they had grown up under surveillance and they were being surveilled at college, meaning at all times their parents at home, and this is, you know, eight years ago, knew where they were at all times. And then in addition, everywhere they went on campus, the school knew where they were because their IDs, they needed their IDs to get into any given building. And so between sort of campus level surveillance, parental surveillance, government surveillance, uh, corporate surveillance, they were growing up and had never known anything but a life of 24-7 surveillance. And when I asked how many of them were comfortable with their relationship with technology. I asked every room I spoke in, and there was never a hand that went up. And then I said, how many of you are ill at ease? How many of you are uncomfortable with uh, tech companies, what their motives are, what their practices are, and your own relationship with them? How many of you are uncomfortable? Every hand would go up. So it seemed to me that there was a lot more to say. I wrote from a point of view of, seeing all of these, the ludicrousness of the world that we, especially here in the Bay Area, that we're surrounded by, um, the drastic changes to the city. And that's one of the themes of the book. And and also um, a sense of outrage. So the thing that sort of gets me up in the morning sometimes is if I'm not trying to entertain myself or a reader with a certain chapter or passage or whatever uh, I am, uh, sometimes just pissed off. And so I want to, I want to you know, uh, I, I guess channel that in some way. And the fact that we do live under the thumb of a handful of ever-growing monopolies is something that I have, I'm unable to accept. And maybe I'm feeling like we still have a few minutes left to turn this back. I want to say that um, Dave Eggers is one of the few writers, even people I know, who spends time trying to be a better person, to be a good person. And since most of us fear goodness, that it will bore us or scold us, I have always taken a special pleasure in the writing of Dave Eggers because he manages to make goodness attractive. He quoted a bit earlier from Peter Pan, the moment where Peter explains that every time a child says, I don't believe in fairies, another fairy drops down dead. Well, For me, every time someone tells me they don't believe in novels, I feel that another novelist disappears from our orbit. (laughs) I am very grateful for the existence, continuing existence of Dave Eggers and of his wife, the novelist Vendela Vida. Thank you, David, for joining me again today. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a blast. That was Dave Eggers. Michael talked with poet Mary Ruffel in 2019. The playfulness in her work lifted him out of loss and grief. I never invite anyone onto the show unless I'm interested in and thrilled by their work. Mary Ruffel, our guest today, is someone... You'll pardon me if this is in any way intrusive, But Mary Rufel is my heart's darling. She really is 
I was privileged to see the manuscript of her new book, Dance, which is published by Way of Books. We're going to begin with the title poem by my guest, Mary Rufel. Dance. I am always up for a bog, said Mary. I, too, am always up for one, said I. And so we put on our rubber boots. I love being in rubber boots, said Mary. And I said the same. The ground sprang as we bogged, the bog wavered as we sprang. Orchids and mushrooms, mushrooms and orchids, slender and pink, squat and brown. And as the light fell, the eyes of the fireflies were all around like tinker ghosts. There is in my house, she said, a stove light that never goes off. And in my car, I said, there's a dash light that never goes off. What warning has no end and ends without warning? She thought I didn't know. <laughs> Dance by Mary Rufo. Now, can you tell me these poems are not themselves dunce-like, but they use what, for lack of a better word, I'm going to call the techniques of dunstum. Yes, they do. Se several of them rhyme, which is something I've never done before and really got into. Um, I think, I don't know if it's Becoming a child again in old age, I've always have, because, you know, predictable, boring reasons. My father would call me a dunce, you know. But it used to, I used to be ashamed of it or it would bother me. And now I just accept it. It's who I am. It's great, you know. Dunstum, my own dunsehood. We're all complicit. You know, we're all dunces in a way. But then many of the poems, I, I hope, deal with the larger issues of the true dunsehood of our nation. My mother, who died this past year, oh. was named Lorraine. Oh, it's a, my middle name. Oh, oh, wow. My middle name. There's a poem here called Lorraine. Called Lorraine. I'll read that. Lorraine. Once I had a plum tree. It was small but sturdy, and every April I threw its petals into the stream. They intoxicated everyone, even the postman. Even the postman knows I am more homesick than E.T. and lonelier than my middle name. I live with mice and bats where once I had toy cars and paper airplanes. Like a wild swan with a blue shadow, I no longer care what I say. You no longer exist. I try to remember my dream, but as soon as I turn on the shower, it's gone. Oh, Mary, you've gone to the place, you know, like, what would you say? Two doors before poetry. <laughs> Mice and bats. Mice and bats. Oh, it's so frightening. It's so frightening. It's so frightening. Now, are these poems escapes into the dunce state because it is so frightening? No, I, don't, I wouldn't say that because I'm, uh, I'm very playful in, yes. in many of them. I think it's escape into old age and literally, to quote a 
line from the poem we, I just read, I no longer care what I say. The older I get, the less self-conscious I am about trying to please anyone but myself and my own sense of imagination. And I no longer care what I say. There are no authority figures. This happens in life. And there's great freedom in aging. Did you yourself in school ever have to stand in the corner? No, I was okay. put on a chair in the hallway. Okay, same thing, yeah. And I was so lonely. It was elementary school, mm -hmm. and it was my favorite teacher who sent me out there. And I had never been punished by that teacher. And I was <laughs> sitting on that chair, Mary, with tears streaming down my face. Oh, of course, of course. I, I spent... Many an afternoon uh, in the corner. It was always in the corner where the walls met. It was punishment. I would misbehave in class, I imagine. And I have strong memories of just standing and staring at the corner. And so we both, we were being punished. We were being called dunces when we weren't, you know. And we were being punished for... For what? For being, for being ourselves. We get on the very last page a haiku. Would you read it? Now take this flea. He simply cannot jump, and I love him for it. It's <laughs> uh, my favorite poet in the world. I never, ever used to be able to answer the dreaded question, who's your favorite poet? And... Poets hate that question, but I now, when I'm asked it, I now have an answer. I just tell them Issa, because I love Issa. Issa is a haiku poet, and when did he live? Do you know? Can you say? Um, eight, 18th century. Oh. Yeah. I could be wrong, but that's my guess. You see, I hope I'm wrong because it would prove I'm a dunce. Well, what's lovely is, you know... A flea that cannot jump, well, can't be in a flea circus, yeah. um, you know, but he can be loved, loved. Like, like everything else can, whether they're gifted with the gifts they're supposed to have or bereft. Mm -hmm. They can all be loved. Now take this flea, he simply cannot jump, and I love him for it. You know, that's like the essence, the concentration of all these poems, all these dunces who bring to us the special affair of having a gift that can't be used. <laughs> yeah. What can you do with it? In addition to Mary Rufel, Michael spoke with Marilyn Robinson, Joan Didion, Jim Crusoe, Steve Erickson, and Dave Eggers on today's show. Michael walked us and them out of the valley of the shadow of grief into the sunshine of literary accomplishment. This is a series of bookworm retrospective shows celebrating Michael Silverblatt and 33 years of bookworm on KCRW. I'm Alan Howard. This show is produced by Connie Alvarez and me. The engineer is P.J. Shahamet. Bookworm and this retrospective are made possible by Lannan Foundation. 
is a bookworm, she is a bookworm, we are all bookworms. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. This program is produced in the studios of KCRW Santa Monica. You can access archives of all Bookworm programs and podcasts, the most recent ones, at kcrw.com bookworm. The Bookworm themes were composed and performed by Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FD Weekend wherever you listen.